Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. The earthquake arrived with a swift, furious jolt. It only lasted 35 seconds, but it was so violent that it destroyed the entire capital of Haiti. That first night, January 12, 2010, President René Préval rode anonymously through Port-au-Prince on the back of a motorcycle. The headlamps illuminated the debris strewn all over the cracked roads. The bodies of the dead cast shadows on the ground. Préval had barely escaped himself. He was on his way home from the presidential palace when the quake hit. As for what came next, he didn't even know where to begin. All his plans for a better tomorrow were gone. How could he help the people now? He couldn't address them. He was too paralyzed to find the words. Children were still lying under the concrete, crying out for help. Hundreds of thousands were already dead. Solving this problem was beyond his reach. As he gathered the leaders of the fractured government, Preval could only hope the rest of the world knew how much Haiti needed them. The president was just as lost as his people. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Tim. Every Monday, we'll explore the moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our second episode on the 2010 Haiti earthquake, an event that killed up to 316,000 people and left over one million homeless. It was one of the most destructive natural disasters of the past century. 
Last week, we looked at the science behind earthquakes, the history of Haiti, and some of the political factors that left it susceptible to such a tragedy. This week, we'll cover the aftermath of the earthquake and how the international community reacted. We'll hear about Haiti's recovery efforts and if they're more prepared today than they were nearly a decade ago. As the sun rose a little over 12 hours after the quake, on January 13, 2010, it was still difficult to grasp how complete the destruction was in Port-au-Prince. Thousands of buildings across the city had collapsed. Nearly 300,000 homes were badly damaged or destroyed. Hospitals had crumbled with patients still inside. The presidential palace, parliament, and high courts were all destroyed. The disaster had crippled the already weak Haitian government. The quake was a magnitude 7.0, and geologists thought that it came from the nearby Enriquillo Plantain Garden Fault. Tectonic plates that had been locked for nearly 200 years finally slipped, sending out large waves of energy. The fault ruptured at a relatively shallow depth of 8.1 miles. Typically, the shallower the earthquake, the more intense the shaking. This is because the less distance the energy waves have to travel, the more destructive they are. The earthquake in Haiti was far from the largest earthquake in 2010 in terms of magnitude. But with the epicenter only 15 miles southwest of Port-au-Prince and shallow depth, it was by far the most destructive. Susan Huff, a USGS seismologist, told the AP that shallow earthquakes are like a bomb directly under a city. The disaster took Haitians by surprise because it was the first large earthquake in the region in over 200 years. The last large quake to hit the city was in 1770, and the results were just as catastrophic. Nearly all of the structures in both 1770 and 2010 were built using vulnerable masonry techniques like brick or concrete. While concrete was affordable and available in Haiti in 2010, it was also the worst material to use in earthquake zones. Wood-framed houses have the ability to flex, but masonry cracks and falls apart because of its rigidity. In those early hours after the quake, Haitians scrambled to save anyone they could from the concrete ruins. Neighbors climbed into the rubble using sledgehammers and buckets. It was dangerous and laborious work. Anytime there was an aftershock, they would have to flee from the debris to avoid getting trapped themselves. Still, countless people were rescued in the first 12 hours after the quake struck. However, some people, like the trapped university student Christina Jolmet and UN worker Jens Christensen, were impossible to reach without special equipment. This equipment wasn't available in Haiti. They would have to wait for international help. 28-year-old Brigitte Jean-Baptiste was among the many Haitians trapped in their own homes. She was in bad shape, but alive. People in her neighborhood were doing their best to get her out. It took them hours, but eventually Brigitte was rescued. Over the time it took for her to be freed, her condition deteriorated, and she was in need of immediate medical attention. Her family set off for the nearest hospital, but as soon as they got there, they realized the trip was in vain. 
the few remaining hospitals that weren't totally destroyed were overrun with patients. It was a triage situation. Quick decisions had to be made on who needed help the most and who could or couldn't still be saved. The hospitals were understaffed and didn't have nearly enough supplies to help everyone. People like Brigitte were left lying outside the hospital waiting for care. People who had been crushed and were slowly dying from internal bleeding were left waiting too. A few were rushed inside to have limbs amputated to stave off deadly infections. But as time passed, more and more people were dying before they had a chance to be treated. Eventually, Brigitte succumbed to her injuries, becoming yet another victim of the earthquake. Her family took her body and put it in a wheelbarrow. They made their way through the streets of Port-au-Prince to find a place to give her a proper burial. For the victims who didn't have family with them, their bodies were taken to the city morgues to be documented and prepared for burial. But it wasn't long before the morgues were filled. Bodies had to be placed outside the building. Piles of corpses draped in sheets of fabric were seen on every street corner. The earthquake didn't discriminate. People of all ages and walks of life were killed. Entire families were extinguished in under a minute. Young siblings became only children, and husbands became widowers. No one would ever be the same. People like Vivian Sulouis were still trying to find their loved ones in a sea of broken concrete. Vivian was looking for her husband, but it was proving difficult. He'd been at work when the quake struck. Many of the neighbors had hurried back when the shaking stopped, but Vivian's husband never made it home. Phone lines were down all across the country, which made it impossible for her to contact him. Vivian took the initiative and began walking around the city looking for him. She checked his work, but couldn't find him. She then started to check the morgues. He would have had his plastic ID badge on at work, so he should be easy to identify. If he was dead, she at least wanted to be the one who buried him. Survivors like Vivian began peeking under the sheets that covered the dead to see if their loved ones were among the pile. It was a relief when the face under the fabric wasn't a familiar one. However, the relief was short-lived. For Vivian and many others, it would be days or weeks before they learned of their loved ones' fates. In some cases, they would never find one another at all. In the hours after the earthquake, there was a palpable sense of fear on the streets of Port-au-Prince. Haitians ran out of buildings any time there was an aftershock. Cries of fear were heard all over the city. The threat of death came with each new tremor. Some became paranoid that the earth would never stop shaking and no one would be safe again. Even if some of the homes had survived, it was hard to trust that the buildings would hold up to the aftershocks. Haitians grabbed any possessions they could from the rubble of their homes and headed for refuge out in the open. Public squares became new shantytowns, with the survivors setting up tarps or blankets as temporary homes. In the open squares, they were safe from another building collapse, but they were living in a new reality, one where they would have to fight every day to survive and for everything they had. There was no running water and no electricity. 
Mothers didn't have much food for their children, and without access to water, most Haitians were left dangerously dehydrated, and they were still among the lucky ones. That first day, January 13th, Prime Minister Jean-Max Bellerive addressed the media. He estimated that over 100,000 people had been killed by the earthquake. The international community heard the call and they responded. As afternoon came, aid workers from other countries started to arrive. A search and rescue team from Iceland was the first international group on the ground. They arrived with special equipment ready to help locate survivors buried under the rubble. Following the Icelandic team, more and more planes began landing with supplies and relief workers. But it became a logistical nightmare. There was only one runway in decent condition at the Port-au-Prince airport. This led to mass confusion on the ground. No one knew how to handle the large volume of planes that were arriving. The airport had never had to deal with this many. Time was ticking. People were dying, and more planes were already in the air on their way to Haiti. Luckily, a small group of soldiers from the United States had just arrived and stepped in to help. They specialized in setting up mobile command posts, and by 7 p.m., they took control of the airport. Within 28 minutes, using only a card table and spreadsheets, they had the airport up and running, allowing more planes to land. However, it took a significant amount of time to offload the cargo from these planes, which included medical aid, food, and tarps. And then they had to find a place to store all the supplies. These problems resulted in backups. Planes would have to circle for over an hour before they were allowed to land, and several other planes had to be grounded completely. To compound the problems at the airport, the UN had been hit especially hard by the quake. They were in Haiti on a peacekeeping mission, but their headquarters at the Christopher Hotel were completely destroyed. Over 100 members of their staff, including key members of management, were missing. The aid that was meant to help only made things more complicated. Supplies were coming in faster than they could be processed, while people in desperate need lay dying in the streets. The clock was ticking to save the country from total collapse. Up next, we'll hear stories of survival and the unified global response to the tragedy. Thank you so much for listening. We want to take this time to tell you that Natural Disasters will be taking the next two weeks off. We'll be back with a brand new episode on January 9th. In the meantime, we do have a special gift to share with you. While we're away, we'll be airing our listeners' most requested episodes of 2019. If you'd like to check out the most requested episodes from ParCast's other shows, subscribe to ParCast Presents to hear our best of 2019. From everyone here at ParCast, we'd like to wish you a happy holiday season. We're thankful for your support and look forward to bringing you even more unique and entertaining podcasts in the new year. Thanks for listening. Now back to the story. 48 hours after the devastating 7.0 magnitude earthquake that rocked Haiti, aid was steadily streaming in. As they waited for supplies to get organized, aid workers were helping to free the survivors who were still trapped in the rubble. As time passed, the likelihood of each person being rescued alive dwindled. 
Christina Jolmet was among the survivors whose time was ticking down. She lay awake in the rubble of her classroom at the University of Haiti. It had been hours or days. She couldn't tell anymore. She had struggled to get out, but it was impossible. She was lucky to have even made it this long. She could smell the decay from her dead classmates who hadn't been spared from the falling concrete. Christina felt her professor's leg against her, but they never moved. She knew they were dead, too. The aftershocks were horrifying for Christina. Within the first two hours, there had been eight large tremors. Since then, there had been about 30 more, and each time, the debris shifted. She knew that if it moved just a few inches, it would crush her in an instant. Christina was tired and weak after spending so much time in one cramped position. In many cases like this, the body can experience rhabdomyolysis, a condition where the muscles start to break down from lack of oxygen and blood flow. Large amounts of protein leave the damaged muscles and head to the kidneys, inhibiting their function. This leads to kidney failure and sometimes death. The main treatment for rhabdomyolysis requires giving the patient IV fluids to help rehydrate the body and flush out the harmful proteins. If Christina didn't get this kind of help soon, she wouldn't survive. She was slipping in and out of consciousness, but she could hear rescue workers moving around above. She made as much noise as she could, but she was weak. Her sounds barely carried. Miraculously, rescuers heard her. It was a slow and arduous process, but she made it out alive. She had been trapped in the collapsed building for two days. It was a relief to finally see the light of day, but it wasn't until she was freed that she understood how extensive the damage was. Looking out over Port-au-Prince, she saw buildings lying in various states of decay. It looked nothing like the city she had last seen two days before. Rescues like this were happening all over Port-au-Prince. Response teams from across the globe had arrived to help. But while they got to work, tons of food, water, and supplies that had been unloaded were sitting at the airport while workers figured out what to do with it. There had to be a coordinated effort to safely and evenly distribute the aid, with over one million people now homeless and millions more without water, it was no easy task. To make matters worse, main roads had been completely torn up by the shaking, making it difficult to transport aid throughout the city. Several roads near the coast sank into the ground in a process called liquefaction. Liquefaction usually occurs on sandy pieces of ground near bodies of water during an earthquake. The waterlogged soil loses its structure and behaves like a thick liquid. It's the equivalent of sand turning into quicksand. This causes the ground to turn into a soft, silty material that's too unstable to stand on. No one would be rushing to fix the roads. The government was in a state of near collapse because all but two of their administrative buildings had been destroyed. It was hard to coordinate a response when things were in such dire straits. The United Nations was incapacitated as well because their headquarters had been destroyed. This left them unable to keep the city safe for the other foreign aid workers. The UN's presence had been keeping the gangs in Port-au-Prince docile. 
However, after the earthquake, these criminal groups became more brash than ever, looting the wreckage to survive. The state of unrest made it dangerous for aid workers to go out into the areas that were the most affected. And the longer it took to get food, the more desperate the people became. A truck full of bottled water was mobbed before it could begin to be distributed. The aid workers had to drive away, throwing the bottles out as they left. Even when the supplies could be safely distributed, the line would often stretch for blocks. When survivors reached the front of the line, they were usually only handed a single item. It was hardly enough food for a single meal, let alone an entire day. It wasn't unusual to see people get to the front of the line to find out that there were no more supplies left at all. The desperation kept building, and people in the crowds began fighting. Getting food and water was a matter of life or death, and after everything they had been through already, they were all determined to live. It didn't matter if someone else was standing in their way. To add to the frustration, word eventually came from people who had been to the airport. They said there were pallets of food and supplies just sitting outside, waiting. The aid was there, they just couldn't get it. While food was trickling out slowly, medical tents began to pop up all over town. But even with the influx of healthcare professionals from across the globe, the need far exceeded what they could provide. Since many of the hospital buildings themselves were destroyed, patients were left outside in medical tents. While the tents provided cover, they were often stifling in the heat. Patients were pestered by flies, and the smell of decay from the streets hung in the air. Even patients that could go inside a hospital were often too afraid to. Children would plead with the staff to leave them outside. They didn't want to suffer through another collapse. They were traumatized, and the staff understood. They would only make them go inside when it was absolutely necessary. The doctors and nurses knew the limitations of Haiti's facilities and of their temporary medical tents. They didn't have the equipment necessary to do certain procedures, and they only had a finite amount of supplies. Fortunately, they had other options. If a patient's injuries were too severe, they could be taken to the airport and airlifted to another country. The United States Navy also stepped in and sent medical ships to Haiti. They were parked just offshore, ready with advanced equipment. Despite the serious conditions of the patients, life aboard the ship was a break from the harsh streets of Port-au-Prince. There was air conditioning, and the patients were fed three full meals a day. However, the shelter was temporary. Once the patients were deemed healthy enough, they were sent back to land for more basic care. And back to their new reality, where they had no home, no food, no water, and for many of them, no families. For all its destruction, the decimated streets of Port-au-Prince still saw some miracles. As rescue teams dug through the wreckage, more and more people were found alive. Jens Christensen of the United Nations had been trapped in the Christopher Hotel for a total of five days in a small coffin-sized space under his desk. He could barely move and had completely lost track of time. He never gave up hope that he would be saved. He knew he would have a better chance to survive if he stayed alert and kept his wits about him. He stretched as much as he could in the confined space and even saved his urine in case he needed to hydrate. 
Finally, he heard the sounds of rescue teams above. He was afraid they wouldn't be able to hear him over the commotion. Eventually, it got quiet, and he heard someone talking. He realized they were trying to talk to him. They knew exactly where he was. When they finally extracted him, Christensen, who had always been skinny, looked more frail than ever. His ribs were visible under his torn shirt as he lay in the stretcher. But miraculously, he didn't have a scratch on him. Christensen was immediately taken to the hospital, where he was given IV fluids and monitored closely. He told his rescuers that he had heard at least two others still trapped. With any hope, they could be saved too. Rescuers had a system down to find as many survivors as they could. Rescue dogs were sent out to scour the wreckage. If the dogs got a scent of a person, they would either sit down on the spot or bark to get the workers' attention. The workers would then lower a microphone down into the rubble and listen for any distinguishable sounds. They weren't listening for words. By that point, most people who were still alive wouldn't have enough energy to speak. Instead, they listened for any sort of tapping. If they heard a noise, they would give commands for the person to follow to make sure they weren't wasting valuable time on a dripping pipe or a trapped rat. Once they had confirmation that it was, in fact, a person, the crew would get to work digging through the debris. They would have to carefully extract the survivor, making sure not to disturb a piece of concrete that could bring the whole thing tumbling down. However, for every story of a successful rescue, there were countless bodies that were found too late. The unclaimed dead were buried in mass graves to avoid spreading disease. Many people never found their loved ones and still don't know where their bodies were buried. As the victims were being laid to rest, promises were being made to the survivors by countless organizations all over the world. They would never be forgotten and Haiti would be built back better than before. But that wasn't the truth. Their good intentions fell far short of actual change. Up next, we'll hear about Haiti's promised future and how it never came. Now back to the story. After the devastating earthquake in January 2010, the world heard about Haiti's plight it wasn't just foreign governments getting involved. In the age of social media, everyday people had a new way to engage with those in need. People on Facebook were able to connect with those who were affected almost in real time. Families in other countries were using the internet to locate loved ones. Social media also became a platform to raise money for relief. Countless businesses across the globe started fundraisers online, from large Fortune 500 companies to local mom-and-pop stores. One of the most successful campaigns came from the Red Cross. They started accepting $10 donations from everyone who texted the word Haiti to a dedicated number. Within a few days, the Red Cross had raised $43 million through text messages. It was one of the most successful campaigns in their history. In the months after the earthquake, they raised nearly $500 million in total. The Red Cross assured everyone that the money would be going toward a good cause. They promised to not only be there for the immediate relief efforts, but to build Haiti back better than it was before the earthquake. However, in the years that followed, there was barely any progress. 
everything was caught in red tape. The Red Cross had plenty of experience in disaster relief, but not in rebuilding a nation. According to an article by NPR, millions of dollars that were planned to be spent by the Red Cross never even made it on the ground. It appears they fell victim to their own inexperience and impossible promises. The Red Cross claims to have housed roughly 130,000 Haitians, but this number actually included people who had attended housing seminars but hadn't received any permanent housing. In reality, the Red Cross only ended up building six permanent homes. Major issues arose when they contracted other companies to get the work done. These contracts resulted in countless fees that took a third of the money they raised off the top. In addition to that, the Red Cross spent $125 million of the funds on their own administrative fees. When they got on the ground, they were completely unprepared for Haiti's collapsed infrastructure. Internal emails showed that many Red Cross employees were clueless about what to do with the money they'd received for certain projects. In one email, an executive joked that it would be a better idea to just fly a helicopter over Haiti and drop money on the people below. The failed response was a slap in the face to the survivors they'd pledged to help. And the problems extended beyond the Red Cross. The United States government had pledged billions of dollars to help Haiti rebuild. However, most of the efforts by the U.S. were based on the same plans they'd made up before the earthquake hit. Instead of rebuilding homes in Port-au-Prince, millions went into building new factories in the northern part of Haiti, where the earthquake damage was scant. After years, the cleanup wasn't anywhere close to being complete. A normal way of life was still a long way off for the survivors who were still struggling. Some went back to work as soon as they could, if they could. Since most of the garment factories in Port-au-Prince had been destroyed, even more people than ever were out of work. Millions of residents were still homeless and didn't have access to running water. The shanty towns that had popped up in the hours after the earthquake still remained years later. Some of the makeshift tent cities did come down as the UN built more permanent relief shelters. However, while the UN brought a lot of aid, they also brought disease. Cholera, which had been eradicated in Haiti, started to afflict thousands. It was discovered that the UN had been releasing waste into a stream that was used for drinking water. Hundreds of thousands of Haitians were stricken by the illness, and thousands died. It was an additional blow that Haiti didn't need. Eventually, tens of thousands gave up and left Port-au-Prince for the hills north of town. They made their homes out of any materials they could find. They still didn't have any running water or electricity, but at least they were away from the ruin of the capital. The ones who took the initiative to build their own future were better off than those who waited on promises. It was still a hard life on the open hills, but it was progress, something that was rarely seen in Port-au-Prince. In the years following the disaster, it became clear that the international community had failed Haiti yet again. Immediately after the earthquake, they were there to help, but the prolonged effort fell short of what was promised. While most of the rubble had been cleared, not nearly enough structures were rebuilt in their place. New hospitals and government buildings were built with earthquakes in mind, 
but most homes weren't held to any new building standards. This could end up leading to another disaster. Haitians today are still in an incredible amount of danger. It was initially believed that the 2010 earthquake occurred on the Enriquillo Plantain Garden Fault, which had been building up pressure for hundreds of years. But in a 2011 study at UT Austin, research scientist Paul Mann found that the earthquake actually occurred on a previously undiscovered branch of the fault. This means that the Enriquillo Plantain Garden Fault still has 200 years of pressure and energy built up. A future quake on the fault has the ability to be even more destructive and could be a magnitude of 8.0. This is a constant threat to the lives of millions in Port-au-Prince. Today, nearly 10 years after the 2010 earthquake, people are still living on the streets with no running water or electricity. The unemployment rate is still high and there is constant social unrest. The lingering sting of failed promises lives on throughout the country. Model homes still dot the landscape in incomplete residential developments. The legacy of the 2010 earthquake is one of failure. The disaster itself was devastating, but the long-term consequences were even more severe due to a complicated history that left Haiti poor and vulnerable. The earthquake killed hundreds of thousands and affected over three million Haitians. The world came together to make things right, but those put in charge of the funds let everyone suffering down. Through it all, the earthquake, the recovery effort, the failed aid, Haitians have remained as they always have been, resilient. But the earth below their feet still continues to build pressure day by day, hour by hour. Someday, history will once again repeat itself. By then, hopefully the international community will have learned its lesson. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals like Natural Disasters for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Robert Tyler Walker, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Tim Johnson. Just a reminder that we'll be back with a new episode on January 9th. In the meantime, we'll be playing our listeners' most requested episodes of 2019. Thanks again for listening. We hope you have a wonderful holiday season. <laughs> <laughs>